Good morning, Sycamore View. It's good to be with you today. Our mission here is that we want to help people see Jesus, which another way to say it is that any obstacle in your life that is keeping you from seeing Jesus, we want to rebuke it, attack it, pray over it so that you can thrive in the kind of, in the kind of adventurous life Jesus wants you to thrive in. Anybody who preaches or is in communication probably remembers the first time they tried to do it. I was 10 years old when I preached my first sermon in front of a church. I grew up in a, my dad's first preaching job was in Crockett, Texas. It was named after Davy Crockett. We were there five years. It's a smaller church, probably 200 members. And at the age of 10, I was asked to preach a sermon on a Wednesday night in front of our church. It was just a five, seven minute message. And I still remember some of the content of that. I preached about how children need to obey their parents in everything from Colossians. And I remember one of the main points I made was like, you aren't supposed to just obey your parents in some things or when you won or when it's convenient, but in everything. And I remember seeing my parents, they were so proud of me and I'm sure there was a part of them that was like, he is a living contradiction, talking to these people about obeying their parents in everything, yet he hardly obeys us in anything. But another point I remember making in that sermon was that you needed to trust God. So I don't know how obeying parents and everything and trusting God came together, but in this sermon it did. And I talked to people about trusting God, and I said, you need to trust God in this kind of way. And I told them, I, told them, I said, I was at my grandparents, who my grandparents lived out in the country, and I was outside running around, and I was in shorts with no shirt, because that's how I used to roll back in the day, all right? And as I was staying there playing with my brother and I think my sister and some cousins, a red wasp landed on the waistband of my shorts. And as it landed there, I prayed that God would keep that from crawling up and landing on the stomach of my skin and stinging me. And it didn't sting me. So the ending of my sermon that day was, you need to have faith like me and trust God (laughs) so you don't get stung either and so you can go and change the world. And dude, people cried. Like they were like, that's the greatest thing ever. And you may have heard that just a moment ago. And you may think, that's probably the best sermon you've ever preached in your life. I don't know if you're thinking that or not. Most of us can probably remember the first time we stood up in front of people. I remember the first time I stood on this stage in front of you and preached my first sermon. I wore a suit that day. Not a tie, but I did have on suit pants and I had on a jacket, which is something I don't know if I've done since that day. (laughs) Anyone who's communicated can probably remember the first time they tried to do it. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' first sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But if you read the Gospel of Luke, the first sermon we're given from Jesus is something different. It's in Luke chapter 4. And here's how it goes. If you want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, and before we even get to that first sermon, I think it's important to point out a few things you see show up in Luke 4, primarily how the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. So what we know is Jesus was around the age of 30. When we have his first recorded sermon in the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 4 of Luke, in verse 1, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. And then in chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So just in Luke 4, you see Jesus is full of the Spirit, that Jesus has been led by the Spirit, and that Jesus has received the power of the Spirit. And I think it's important just for you to see that what God did for Jesus by filling him with the Spirit and Jesus being led by the Spirit and being empowered by the Spirit is the same thing the Spirit of God does in you. That this isn't something that just happened to Jesus. There's no one who God saves that God does not want to also fill with the power of the Spirit and be led by the Spirit just as Jesus was. 
So in this room today are people who've been saved by God or who desires, who God desires to be saved, who wants to, God wants to fill with the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, be empowered by the Spirit. And it's almost like Luke is using this in a way to say, now Jesus is ripe. He is ready for his public ministry. And it begins in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So we have Jesus teaching in some other settings, yet we don't know the exact content of that. But in verse 16, it says, He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. So before we go on any further... Here's Jesus in Nazareth. Now, when I and a few of you went to Israel a few months ago, we went to a village in Nazareth, that, which is set up much like it would have been in the days of Jesus. It's one of the highlights of our trip. So you go through all these different things and you see what life would have been like in that area. And we don't know the exact location where Jesus' home was or the work he did in that area or where the synagogue was. But we know that where we were and somewhere within a few hundred yards is where all of this went down. And at one point when you're in this village, you go into a synagogue, which wasn't the exact synagogue Jesus would have been in, but it's a synagogue that represented and would have looked much like what that synagogue looked like. It was small. It was square-shaped. We had about 80 people, and it could fit about 80 of us, maybe a few more in there. There weren't pews. I don't want to upset you, but they didn't have pews in there. And we sang a few songs, and then we read Luke chapter 4 in a setting where Jesus would have given this sermon. It lets you know it's in Nazareth, it's on the Sabbath day, it's in the synagogue, as was his custom. And here's how it happens in verse 17. It says that Jesus stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. So, right there with the imagery is that Isaiah is handed to Jesus, and it's almost like Jesus takes Isaiah. So, Isaiah is what he is given. He's not just given a choice of all 39 books in the Old Testament. Isaiah is handed to him, and it makes it sound like Jesus looks at Isaiah, and he discovers what he wants to read in front of other people. And he turns to Isaiah 61, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then in verse 20, it says, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. So we have Jesus reading the Bible, but we don't have Jesus expanding on, expounding on it. We don't have him teaching on it. All we have is Jesus read something, he sits down, and it says all the eyes were fixed on him. Like people weren't moving. They weren't moving on to the next thing in the worship order. And something just happened. And what does this happen is something that had been read that most Jews would have known what that is. Like this was something that pointed to a new time when God is doing a new thing and the Messiah is coming. It may be somewhat like if I stood up in front of you and I read maybe like a John 3, 16, for God so loved the world and you know where that is and where it comes from and you've heard it since childhood. These people would have heard Isaiah 61 for almost all of their lives and now they hear it in a different setting and they're focused on Jesus so Jesus stands back up and he says this he began saying to them so it makes it sound like he's about to teach and there are other things he says but all we have is one sentence one statement he says today this right here is fulfilled in your hearing today the Greek word semeron like the thing God is doing today this is fulfilled so for those people this was a messianic 
fulfillment. This was a promise. This was something new that God was doing. Something they had been waiting, that they had been waiting on. So now you see the response to Jesus' first sermon. And I'm grateful that my response to the first sermon on this stage when I preached it isn't the same that Jesus had. In verse 22, it was this. All spoke well of him. They were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. They're excited for what he has to say. But then you fast forward to verse 29, and it says, They got up, drove him out of the town. They took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. How is that for your first day in public ministry? They're ready to throw him off a cliff. And the reason why is because Jesus reads from Isaiah 61. And as he reads from it, everybody was really excited about it. Yeah, that's a fulfillment. That's that's what's supposed to be read. When the new movement of God comes and the Messiah comes, they're excited. But then when Jesus explains what that's going to look like, people didn't want it anymore. When Jesus began to explain that what this looks like is that they're actually going to be non-Jews who are invited into the family of God. And the family of God is going to be about the rich people and the poor people and people from all different walks of life being drawn into this family. That's where people were like, hold up, that's not how we've ever interpreted Isaiah 61 in our lives. There's this new movement. So this right here, if you go to the next slide, in Isaiah 61, which is what Jesus quotes in Luke 4. This right here, there's some good news about this and there's some challenging news. There's something that this means and there's something this doesn't mean. And what this means is this, that what Jesus does in reading this and then saying, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, Jesus is laying out like, hey, this right here is like the table of contents of Jesus' ministry. This is a thesis of what Jesus is going to be about. There are scholars and theologians who will say this right here should be the foundation that you read all of the gospel of Luke through and Luke and Acts. That this right here lays the foundation for it. And what Jesus says in John chapter 5 verse 19 is that I do whatever I see the Father does. Like whatever I see God do, and what I, this is Jesus talking, what I see in the heart of God is what you see lived out in me and in my ministry. So when you see this right here and Jesus says today, this is going to be fulfilled in your hearing today. This is what I'm all about. Jesus is saying this right here is the heart of God. So when you read the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, what you see is that God heart, his heart bends towards the broken and the hurting and the poor and the oppressed and those who are at the end of their rope. God's heart bends towards justice and compassion and deliverance and freedom. This is how the heart of God beats. This is the heart that God wants to hand on to the church. And your heart beats in these ways too. And if you're at a place where you feel delivered and free, then the calling of God isn't for you just to say, well, at least I've arrived. It's that you come to a place where you know God is going to now use you to be about this right here. To speak good news to the poor. To bind up the brokenhearted. To help those who are blind come to a point where they can see. That is what this means. Now what this doesn't mean is this. It doesn't mean that Jesus has come to say what matters in your life if you love God. Is that you give your life to a life of justice and compassion. And all those things you've done in the past to connect with God. Through corporate worship. Through sacrifices. That those don't matter anymore. It's not like God is elevating justice, compassion, and service and minimizing all the traditions that have connected to God in the past. So what this means is that even for the church today, the calling of the church 
is not that what really matters in your life is that you are trying to love your neighbor and do things in the world to promote and live out compassion and justice. As important as those things are, those need to be elevated in the life of the church, but not in a way where we say, like the Lord's Supper that we do every Sunday doesn't matter as much. Is this making sense at all? So Jesus is doing this in the synagogue, and at no point is Jesus going to call people out of the synagogue or away from the temple as if what happens in there doesn't matter anymore. What I want to do the next two weeks, so for three weeks, I want to talk to you about three places in the book of Isaiah where worship and service come together. And they come together in a way where it's not that Isaiah is going to say worship matters and you don't need to care as much about service and Isaiah also doesn't say service is the only thing that matters and you don't need to care about worship. It's that worship and service need each other if we want to do this the way God wants us to do it. Something you need to know about Isaiah. Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't quote anything else more than the New Testament quotes Isaiah. There are early church fathers who would call Isaiah not just the greatest prophet who ever lived. They also called Isaiah the first apostle and the first evangelist. Even though Isaiah may not have known that. But Isaiah talks so much about new creation and about the Messiah. And there are prophecies in the book of Isaiah that do come to fulfillment in Jesus. Even though Isaiah may not have known exactly what that was going to look like. There were early church fathers who considered him the first evangelist and the first apostle. There was an early church father named Augustine whose teacher was Ambrose. And one day Augustine went to Ambrose and Augustine said, Ambrose... What is the first book in the Bible I should read to understand the rest of the Bible? So if other people come to me and these people say, hey, I've never read the Bible. Where should I begin? What is the book I should tell them to begin in? And Ambrose's answer was Isaiah. Ambrose could have chosen Genesis through Revelation. He chose Isaiah. Now, I don't think I would choose Isaiah. I know books I wouldn't choose if somebody was coming to me or I found somebody and they had never heard the story of God. I would not have them begin in Jude or Joel or Leviticus or Numbers. I would probably have them begin in Mark or Luke or Ephesians or James. And if you pick one outside of those four, you're wrong. I'm right. That's all right. But Ambrose said, Isaiah. For him, if you read Isaiah, it lays a foundation, everything from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1 begins with this, the vision, which this word vision in Isaiah shows up 38 times, which is going to be important in just a moment. It says, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos son, uh, saw during the reign of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, if you go to that next slide, I just wanted you to see how long it took for Isaiah to write the book of Isaiah. Because sometimes we don't think about these things when we read the Bible. Sometimes we read the Bible and we see like he did this and they're in the reins of these people and we don't really think how long that was. Sometimes we may think that God like took Isaiah away and just gave him a vision and then Isaiah spent a few weeks and he wrote it down or like God called Isaiah to have a study break and on the study break he wrote the book of Isaiah. Look right here. He, he prophesied during the reign of these people. Now, most likely he began prophesying toward the end of Isaiah's reign. In Isaiah 6, we're going to look at it next week. It talks about the death of Isaiah. 
through most of the reign of Hezekiah, we're probably talking about around 50 years that the book of Isaiah was put together. Imagine Isaiah receiving a vision from God and then he journals and he writes it down. And then there's another time where there's a vision from God and he writes and then it builds over a span of four to five decades to become what we have as the book of Isaiah. 66 chapters, one of the longest books in the Bible. And I think this is important because Isaiah writes, and sometimes you read Isaiah and you get to a chapter and it sounds so full of joy and hope and life and there's righteousness. And then like the next page is unrighteousness and rebellion. And there are times where you're reading Isaiah and it sounds like the people of God are clicking. They're clicking with God. They're understanding righteousness. They're understanding justice. And then there are times where they, don't, they just don't get it. It's like they've lost their way. They've forgotten what it means to live with purpose. And doesn't this sound a lot like your life too? That there are days and weeks and seasons of your life, man, it is just clicking. You're understanding God. There's a passion for God. And there are seasons in your life where there's either rebellion or apathy that sets in and you kind of lose your way. And then something will happen that there's a fire of God that awakens in your soul and you're reminded of who you're supposed to be in God. And we go through these seasons too. Isaiah 1 begins... In a way where the people of God in that time, it was, it's a sober picture. The people of God are in need. The country was in ruins. There's no one who is binding up their wounds. The rulers are not craving righteousness. They're murderers. Things are going wrong. There's no righteousness there. And Isaiah writes to him in Isaiah 1. And let me just walk you through a few of these verses. Beginning in verse 10. It says this. Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of God, you people of Gomorrah. What would you think if I stood up in front of you one day and it was like, Sycamore View, you're the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, I don't think you would receive that as a, as a word of deep love from me. And this is some sarcasm from Isaiah. Like, there's, just, there's rebellion. There's, there's unrighteousness. So in verse 11, it's this. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. It's God saying, your sacrifices don't mean anything to me. They don't add anything. They're not coming from a heart that really cares. I, I think this would be Isaiah's way of saying, you're just going through all the motions. In verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my court? So you sense God here, even saying that what happens in the temple is supposed to be so beautiful and righteous and connection. And now you're coming into my courts and you're making it into something it shouldn't be. So stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. These new moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Verse 14, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. It's God saying, I hate with all my heart. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. And when you spread out your hands in prayer, you get this image of like a child reaching up to a parent. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are so full of blood. Isaiah is not criticizing the use of, of their corporate worship and the use of their sacrifices, he's criticizing their abuse of it. They're living a certain kind of life and then they're coming before God and their hearts aren't in it. It's not lining up with the kind of lives they're living. So then God's going to give them a call to action of things that you need to stop doing in repentance and then he's going to call them the things to do in just two verses. And here's it. 
in verse 16. Wash and make yourselves clean. In the book of Isaiah, this washing shows up, I believe, 53 times, a ceremonially movement to wash yourselves and repent before God. If you ever want to be a part of a revival in your life, you can't get to revival if you aren't willing to go through repentance. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of sight. Stop doing wrong. And then you flip to verse 17 and what it says is this. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And most of your English versions get one of these statements wrong. If you go to that next slide, this third one, the seek justice, defend the oppressed, it, it would probably be better put, put right the oppressor. International Justice Mission, IJM, they get this right. So this is an effort that's been around for a couple of decades, maybe a few decades. IJM, they are located places throughout the world where they are attempting to lift people out of being uh, sold into sex slavery and other forms of slavery, but they don't just seek to rescue people. They seek to take down the oppressors of people. So they hire and train attorneys and spread them out all over the world to implement justice. John the Baptist tried this, and he got his head cut off. Jesus did this, ends up on a cross, So to take the road of following Jesus isn't always going to mean like a happy, joyful, like no suffering in your life kind of life. You learn to do right. You seek justice. You care for the oppressed. Fight to bring down oppressors. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And I don't think Isaiah writes this in a way where what Isaiah is saying to you is, this is what worship is. I think Isaiah is writing in a way to say, when worship before God with the people, when you come together, when worship is focused on connecting to God and God's heart, this is the kind of stuff that flows from it. It's not forget all your assemblies and just go do justice. It's crave God and align your heart with God. And this is what will happen when we do. The message isn't to stop worshiping so that you can pursue justice. It's worship in a way that aligns your heart correctly with God. I remember growing up in church and occasionally I would hear people pray. And I remember hearing this almost all of my childhood. The closing prayer especially is when I would hear a prayer that would go something like this. God be with us as we leave this place and we enter into the real world. And there may have been times I prayed that prayer. I don't remember. I just remember when I reached a place of deeper maturity in God... I began to have some issues with the prayer. God, be with us as we leave this place and enter into a real world. Because what does that say about the place where we are? So if that's the real world, I don't think we would say this is the make-believe world or the fake world. It's that maybe this is more like the real world. And where we come to understand God's heart so that we can go out to the world and do the kind of things God wants us to do. So for those of you in the room today who feel like you are at a place where you are at the end of your rope and you feel broken beyond repair and you're hurting in life, the good news is, as they threw out all of Scripture, the heart of God bends toward people like you. Bends to set you free 
to liberate. And what you see multiple times throughout Scripture is a God who hears the groans of hurting broken people. And in the book of Exodus, it's not just that God sees your brokenness. It's that God sees it in a way where God decides to do something about it. And for others of you in the room today, what I've come to believe in my life is that some of the most dangerous Christians aren't the Christians who are caught up in deep forms of sin. It's the Christians who are caught up in deep seasons of apathy. And they need God to awaken them. To remember what it is we're supposed to be about. So we do have four tables that we set up every Sunday. And some of you take advantage of these. And if you want to write a prayer in there. Where I would love to get that tomorrow morning. And to pray over you in any kind of way. And to hand that on to the leaders of the church. Give us an opportunity to do that. If there's a broken place in your life you need redeemed. If there's something in your life you need the fire of God to awaken. I want to ask for the leaders, the elders, the prayer leaders, if you will, surround this room to receive people for prayer this morning. And I want to invite you as we sing a song to reflect, to pray, to repent, to align our hearts with God so that we can leave this place and be the kind of people God desires us to be. Let's stand together. Let's sing a song.